Bibles to the little tiny book of Amos as we finish it up tonight. Next week, Joshua chapter 1. So, we're going to spend some time in that wonderful book of Joshua, a book we haven't ever done here at Calvary Chapel Running Springs. So, looking forward to that time. But tonight, we have before us a tremendous passage of Scripture, Amos chapter 9. And a few final thoughts. As we began this book, and as I've said throughout our time in in the prophetic books, whenever you look at especially these minor prophets, they were speaking at times of turmoil and times of trial and times of difficulty for the nation Israel. But very often they were also looking forward prophetically to things that are yet to come. And that is surely true of the final chapter here in the book of Amos in chapter 9. And as we begin tonight's study, I think it's very important for us to to keep in mind a couple of things, two spiritual truths, uh, because this last chapter is full of some admonitions from the Lord, and the first three of them are of judgment. And when we move to the New Testament dispensation of grace, when we move to that time that, that we can now know God personally through Jesus Christ as Son, we are in that age of grace. We are under the the wonderful care of His grace. But God's mercy has endured forever. His grace was made real to us at the cross, but even His grace existed in times past, and God graciously dealt with the nation Israel, though they could not at that time come to that personal relationship because that took the death on the cross to bring it to fruition. God was still dealing in the same fundamental truths in the Old Testament that exist in the New Testament. And so when we see things like we see tonight, sometimes we we can almost say that the God of the Old Testament was kind of mean and nasty and angry. It's just like when we get to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua is a book of war and conquest and all these crazy things that go on in the book of Joshua. It's It's an exciting book, but it also prefigures the life of Christ. And so tonight, as we finish up here in Amos, a couple of truths that I would begin with tonight. The first one found there in James chapter 2. And so speak and so do, it says in verse 12 of James 2, as those who would be judged by the law of liberty. Aren't you glad that in Christ you're going to be judged by the law of liberty and not by the law itself? Because if you are judged by the law, you're going to perish. Anyone who would ever be judged by the law would perish. It's impossible to keep the law. In fact, so much so that Paul would write that it was simply a tutor, a schoolmaster to bring us to the place that we could know Christ. And so it goes on there in James 2 to say this in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. God's mercies are new every morning. Amen? He does not give us what we deserve. So even when He allows bad things, or He directly causes things to happen, like He does to His own children, Israel, He's going to allow them. He's going to tell the Assyrians, go take them. He's going to tell the Babylonians, go take them. He's going to allow the diaspora. They're going to be scattered all over the earth. He even allowed the Holocaust. By the way, in the name of Christianity, 
A lot of people don't get the fact that anti-Semitism started in the church. It began with Christians, supposed Christians. And it goes on to say, mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Because if mercy doesn't triumph over judgment, and all we have to look forward to is the judgment of God, we're all toast, amen? We're in, we're in deep trouble. We are absolutely in deep trouble if ultimately we're simply going to suffer the judgment and the wrath of God. Because we all deserve it. I deserve it today. I haven't been perfect today. Been pretty good, but I haven't been perfect. The second thing found there in Galatians chapter 6, familiar passage to all of you. You see, though mercy triumphs over judgment, this last chapter also shows us that you reap what you sow. It has always been that way. It will always be that way until Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, until that mountain splits in two, until the reign of Christ is here on this earth in its totality, you are going to reap what you have sown. The good news is, once that time comes, then the only thing that you're going to sow is righteousness. So you're going to reap righteousness 100% of the time. But until that day, you will reap what you have sown. That's why it says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so when we, we, we see these biblical principles that we find in the New Testament, it's kind of easy for us to look at them and say, well, that is now, and it was different then. That's not true, because that would make God a liar. Because his word plainly declares that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He furthermore says, I change not, says the Lord. So God can have never been less than merciful. God can never have been less than gracious. God has always been kind, but God also judges sin. The difference is, today he judges sin based on the merits of Christ. Then he judged sin based on the merits of the law. He's always judged sin, and you've always paid a price for living a life of sin. And so the first three things that we will find in tonight's passage are God saying, look, you reaped it because you sowed it. You get it because you gave it. You did what you thought you should do and what you wanted to do, and now you're going to have to pay the price for it. That day, ultimately, for the children of Israel, that ultimate day is still future. But man, is it on the horizon. This is an exciting year to be alive. It's an exciting time in the history of humanity to be alive. We, we could well be the generation that hears the trumpet of God. We could well be the ones who are snatched away by force. There will be two of us walking in the field. You know, as we see our world, we can see that the world like never before has deserved the judgment of God. We are doing things today that, frankly, I don't think any of us could have ever thought possible. I, I look at the world and it's like, how can people not see the evil? 
How can people look at the world and say, oh, it's a bunch better? It's not a bunch better. Matter of fact, the disparity between evil and good has become much greater and much easier to see. And so tonight, Amos chapter 9 and a few final thoughts. Three of them, judgment. And the fourth and final, God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time tonight. Thanks for your faithful family, Lord, that's come out to study your word. We pray that you would bless each of us, Lord. Give us recollection of what we hear. Lord, not because I say it, but because your word is true. Every man's a liar, Lord. We just simply want to expound upon your word tonight. And so, Lord, as we do so, would you impart it to our memories, cause us to take hold of it, to remember the spiritual lessons contained in this very old and, and very true book. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for this time. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. First, the bad news. God does judge sin. He's always judged sin. He's always going to judge sin. And one day that judgment's going to be final. Complete. Total. The devil's going to get his due. Amen? Uh, Just like the old Charlie Daniels song, the devil went down to Georgia looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind. He was way behind, willing to make a deal. He's still willing to make a deal. Okay, Don't ask me why I know these things. Okay, It's just not good. But it's true. The devil's still at work. And people are still falling for his tricks and his tactics. Amen? Verse 1, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword, and he who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. And so he begins by, by saying, you know what, I hate false religion. I've always hated false religion. There are an awful lot of people who sit in church today who do not personally know the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who go very religiously to religious services who are not pleasing to the Lord. There are many people who externally look like they're doing something holy and wonderful and just, and yet the righteousness of God is far from them because they do not care for the things of God. Can I remind you that God sees our hearts? He's not all of a sudden, wow, you know, Jeff just really looks like he's doing well. Now, I will give you a little confession here. I have in my past been one of those people who's sat in church. I remember as a 17-year-old, I'm sitting in church in the back row of El Cajon First Baptist Church. I'm sitting in church literally thinking of the evil that I could do once I got out of church. It's like, well, there's going to be this party and there's going to be that thing going on and, you know, that girl's cute or what. You know, I remember thinking those things. I'm not thinking of the Lord. Don't let that be you. And don't let it stick. Because if it does, then you fall into that category of people who have heard the word of the Lord, but they have gone on as a person who did not see their own face in the mirror. You're looking, well, that's not me. Yeah, it is. In this vision, Amos sees the Lord standing by an altar. And I I believe that this is figuratively speaking of what would come, uh, certainly under the Assyrians. The Assyrians 
wiped out most of the Jewish people. They left only the tribe of Levi and Judah in the south, principally the tribe of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. They nearly took the entire uh, Jewish people, either captive or killed them. It certainly applied to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Amen? Wiped out. That's why Nehemiah came back with Ezra to rebuild it. Because it was gone. And so you can imagine, uh, interestingly enough, you remember when Jesus took his last breath, and we'll see this as we, as we get to Easter week, when Jesus took his last breath, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn, wasn't it? From the top to the bottom. Were not the posts shaken to the ground? So this great earthquake undertook the city, and, and within 70 years, from the time that Christ was born until 35 years after his death, the temple was destroyed, leveled. No stone left on top of one another. It's still not there to this day. But your Bible says there's going to be a third one. It's going to be rebuilt during the reign of the Antichrist or shortly before, which will be destroyed during the tribulation. And a fourth one, which will be rebuilt in the time of the millennium, during the, during the time that Ezekiel spoke about in Ezekiel 40 through 45. Pictured there in Zechariah chapter 6. So that temple, every time it's become defiled, it gets destroyed. The last one, the fourth one, will stand. There's been two. The first one built by Solomon. The second one built by Herod. A third one that will be built in the reign of the Antichrist and destroyed during the tribulation by the Jewish people, which they, by the way, are preparing to rebuild right now. And the rabbis of both the Ashkenazi and the Shepherdi Jews all believe that they should rebuild the temple now. There'll be a third one. That one, too, is going to get destroyed. So as the Lord sees through time, he's saying, look, don't play around. I see your hearts. I'm not at all put off by these things. They're man-made religion. And again, I want to try and be kind because the Jews are blind in part, and we're going to see that at the end of tonight's study. Because God has said, look, you you rejected the the Messiah, you rejected my son, so you don't see clearly. But that doesn't mean they can't see. It means that that blindness is there because of their own stupidity, because of their own arrogance, because of their own religion. God doesn't like religion. He never has. He wants relationships. He wants to personally be in your life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so he says, I'm going to strike. Then he goes on in verse 2, and I'm going to draw your attention to several things. And he says, I will search. A lot of people believe that if they just prepare, because we're so infinitely wise and smart and resourceful, that we can escape the judgment of God. There are some people banking on that, even though they believe the tribulation might actually either be here now or be coming in the future, and yet they think that they won't go through it because they're so well prepared. Check this out, verse 2. Though they dig into hell, 
Interesting figure of speech that Amos uses here. It literally means to burrow down towards the center of the earth. It was believed by the ancients, whether they were Greek, Jews, or Romans, that the abode of the dead, which is the word that's used here, was in the middle of the earth. Though they burrow all the way down to hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, there are people that believe, one of the reasons that uh, if you've kept tabs of such things, there are several private spaceports under concern. We have one here in California, built by Richard Branson, you know, the billionaire who owns Virgin Airlines. He's got his own Virgin Galactic One. You can fly in your own spaceship. It's only 150000 bucks for a five-minute ride. Not bad deal if you want to go to space. Though they climb up to heaven. There are some people banking on us. Pop, you know, all the, the pop culture uh, of what we believe about our universe based on theoretical physics. As we look at the astrophysical world that we now believe that the universe is some 13.8 billion light years wide. There are people that believe out there someplace, well, we can just escape it. We'll go to some planet. There are some Earth-like planets out there somewhere. We haven't actually found one. But people are banking on getting in a spaceship and flying off into heaven and they'll escape the tribulation. They're still doing it. They were thinking it then. From there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on top of Carmel. Mount Carmel was, was a place, and it remains so today. There's a monastery there. If you travel there, you can go roughly the spot that you know, the prophet Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal. This wonderful place, surely set aside. I mean, Elijah had that tremendous victory. Surely uh, a holy place like that would be spared. From there, I will search and take them. When God comes looking for unrighteousness, when his wrath gets poured out on this earth, there will be nowhere to hide. I will search for them and find them there. And though they hide in my sight at the bottom of the sea, another place that we've been researching, hey, let's build these under, maybe we can find the lost city of Atlantis. We can live on the bottom of the ocean. It'll be safe there. Captain Nemo. Well, you know, I was a Jules Verne fan growing up. You know, I love that kind of stuff. It's like 20,000 leagues under the sea. God comes looking. Won't matter. From there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And they will go into captivity before their enemies. And from there I will command the sword, and I will slay them. And I will set my eyes on them for harm and not good. When God is done, when the age of grace is over, when the church has been taken home, and when the tribulation ensues, it does not matter how well prepared you were. God will find you, he will search you out, and you will pay the price for rebellion against God. And so when you look at these groups of people, it's crazy how many people think that they're smart enough to escape the, the plans that God has for the world in its wretched state. 
I, I was searching through the internet to kind of find some of the latest developments in this way and in, in this slide that you see behind me. You know, there are a lot of people. My grandfather was a John Birch Society member to the core, okay? This was a dude. My family, just to kind of give you a little history on us, we used to own Mission Valley, where Jack Murphy Qualcomm Stadium sits. We ran cattle there back in the 50s and 60s. Okay, so we had a lot of dirt, a lot of dirt that's worth hundreds, probably of billions of dollars now, but we were so stupid, we sold it all when it was 15 cents an acre. But we used to own that, and my grandfather thought, look, I'm going to sell all this, and so he sold it for the right-of-way that is freeway, the, free, the 8 freeway right now that runs right up the middle of it. So he sells it. He's going to move to Montana. And so he moves to Montana in the 60s, and the dude builds the underground bunker world, believing that, that the commies were going to come get us, okay, and we were going to get nuked. And for those of us that were during that time, we've talked about this at some of our morning prayer gatherings, and we get off on these wild tangents. But for those of us that are a little older than some of the rest of you, we remember having nuclear war drills when we were, you know, in, in grade school in the 60s. And it's like, what is crawling underneath your desk going to do when an A-bomb goes off? Okay, I always wondered that. It's like, well, just get under your desk. You're just like, <laughs> you're incinerated. But to give you an idea how crazy things were, during that time, we, we built a number of dif- different redundant missile facilities to be able to lob intercontinental ballistic missiles primarily at the Russians. And in building those, the one that you see under construction, this, this is an old Atlas ICBM silo. The walls on the top of this thing are nine feet thick of reinforced concrete. It's 127 feet deep. So for those of you who like to keep, that's 12 stories below ground. Okay? So they've now begun selling these because they're surplus government property. So this dude in Kansas has now bought two of these. This one that you're looking at is sold out. They are condos. And one floor of the condo in the missile still has the blast doors and everything on the top. As a matter of fact, they put a bigger one over the top of it. So these people buy these things and they think that when Armageddon happens, it's one of their selling points, that they'll go in this missile silo. They have their own private water supply and air filtration, enough food for seven years. You can't live with your kids for a week. How are you going to stay underground in an 18, if you get a whole floor, it's 1,820 square feet. That's $3 million. Half of it, bargain, only $1.5 million. You can go in with your friends. Craziness. We, we think we can escape by going underground, like God can't find us in a missile silo in Kansas. I don't want to live above ground in Kansas much less below ground in Kansas. You've all probably seen this particular facility. This is the Cheyenne Mountain facility. It's in right outside of Colorado Springs. When, when you look at this particular facility, it, it's staggering how well constructed it is. It took about two years to build. The entrance tunnel on one end is about 1,800 feet long. The other end is over 2,300 feet long. It goes to a couple of blast doors that put the whole facility underground There is a small city in there, 
It actually, the entire facility is built on springs so that if it should get an earthquake or a shock from an atomic weapon, the buildings are completely encased in metal to protect it from an electronic, uh, magnetic, electromagnetic pulse. It is built to withstand a 30 megaton hydrogen bomb going off at the entrance. Okay? You're not going to live. You're not going to survive. If you're inside of NORAD, that NORAD is still in there, by the way. Everybody thinks, no, NORAD left. No, they didn't leave. They're still in there. But so is the NSA and several other government agencies. They're all, they all have their little headquarters inside there. It isn't going to make any difference. God can find you in there. You see, we think that we have it all figured out. Those blast doors weigh 25 tons. They're four and a half feet thick. And yet two people can push one closed if you have to by hand. We think we have it all figured out. They have a water reservoir that holds 1.5 million gallons of fresh water. They have another water reservoir that holds four and a half million gallons of potable water. They have another reservoir of 1.25 million gallons of diesel fuel to run all of the generators that are under there with them so that they could survive the entire staff, 926 people, could live under there for 30 days. Never open the doors. We think. And then a final one. Probably some of you know what that is. Others of you don't. Did you know we have a presidential fortress? It's only been activated twice. Once during the Cuban Missile Crisis and once on N-11. Where our president, the, the chief of staff, the cabinet are split up so that if by chance there is a nuclear attack on the United States soil, that you can take and take our president and his cabinet and put them underground and sustain them for a period of time. This facility was built in 1958. It too was designed to take a nuclear weapon of any size. And remember that the Soviets actually have built the world's largest nuclear weapons ever. They've actually detonated a hundred megaton hydrogen bomb. To give you an idea, that's roughly five and a half thousand times more destructive power than what we dropped on Japan in the Second World War. Big bomb. Large bomb. We think that somehow, well, you know, if I just had a pass to get into Mount Weather, if I had a pass to get into Cheyenne Mountain, if I just buy myself a condo, there are people all over the earth that think they can hide from God. Well, I'll just come back out when it's all done. Passage before us says, isn't going to happen, and here's why. Verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of falling in lava. I, I've seen lava. I've been near lava. Connie and I tried to hike to lava one time. We didn't make it. I don't know what a melting earth is going to look like, but I know this. When the Lord says it's over, it's over. And if he chooses to melt the earth, and whether he does that through some type of horrific nuclear catastrophe, or whether he does that by striking the earth with some kind of uh, interstellar object, or whether he does that simply by just applying enough pressure to it with his own hands, he's just done. When God says it's over, it's over. <clears throat> and all who dwell there will mourn. And all who 
shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. And he who builds his layers in the sky. You get the picture? He's saying, guys, you can do whatever you want to do. You can think wonderful, lofty thoughts. You can build up all kinds of defenses against anyone and everything on the face of the earth, but they will do no good when I say time's up. He has founded his strata in the earth. Can I remind you that this was written probably about 750 B.C. or so? Someplace between 820 and 750 B.C. We knew nothing about geologic strata at that time, and yet your Bible mentions that there is a strata to the earth's structure, that there are layers in the sky. We now know that. We now know that there's an ionosphere and a stratosphere, that there's Van Allen radiation belt, there's all these wonderful things that are out there. We now know they're there. We didn't know that then. Your Bible said that the better part of 2,000 years before we figured out any of those things. Who calls the waters of the sea, pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is, is his name. Do you remember when we had the tsunami in Japan? Just a couple of years ago. Did you ever get a, did any of you ever see the tsunami wall that was actually built to protect the city of Sendai from that very thing? They built a wall about 18 feet tall along the edge of the bay that is Sendai Harbor. Did any of you see the cars going over the top of it when just a simple tsunami swept in? Can you imagine what God could do if he decided to take his hands off the moon, its orbit, change the tide sequences, you know, allowed a underwater earthquake? We had an 8.2 yesterday off the, off the coast of Chile. It sent a six and a half foot tsunami towards the coast, didn't do much damage. Can you imagine if God ceased doing what God does? The Lord is his name. He actually goes to the point of saying, look, it's God who does these things. And when he does these things, you're not going to do business with him. No seawall will be tall enough. No fortress will be deep enough. No, no amount of concrete and steel is going to protect you from the wrath of God. And in fact, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very clear. The book of Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made that were made, and through him was nothing made that was made. And in him all things consist. He holds them together. So from a scientific standpoint, you can't build anything strong enough to withstand the wrath of God. When he says it's time, it's time. And mankind is going to experience one day the full frontal force of the wrath of God. We don't like hearing that. But it's what your Bible plainly declares. It doesn't beat around the bush. And it says it over and over and over and over again. It began in the Old Testament prophets and it finishes in the last book of your Bible the book of Revelation. And from one time to the other, God says, look, you have this time, which we're in right now, the age of grace, to get it right. After that, I'm not playing games. Jesus is coming back. 
And when he comes back, he's coming back as a conquering king. He will be coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as a warrior. He's not coming back to be crucified again. He's not coming back to be meek and humble. He's coming back to take the deed that he owns to earth and take possession of his earth. This earth and everything on it belongs to him. And mankind has tried to snatch it from God. One of the reasons that we have the mess we have in our world today, the ecological mess that we have today, is because man has tried to snatch it away from God. You see, that isn't going to work forever. The sifting sieve. Here he goes, and he begins to remind us of a, another final thought, if you will. The really bad news that he's actually going to destroy. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia, it says in verse 7 to me, the children of Israel? Well, probably some of you know that there has been a constant return since about 1970 of Ethiopian Jews to Israel. Continues to this day. So much so that there are actually two Ethiopians in the Jewish Knesset currently. The Lord's going to gather them back. Says the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphor, the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He says, I see it all. Interesting thing happens when you're, <clears throat> if you happen to be out mining or maybe you run a gravel pit. We'll use the gravel pit because it's simpler. But the example that I would leave for you is as you begin to process rock, what you use is a very large grate to start with, and they consistently get smaller until you finally get it down to the size of the rock that you want to end up with. God's sieve is infinitely fine. He can squeeze it down to whatever size he wants. And right now, he's letting a lot of things drop through. There's some big hunks of junk that the world's allowed to do. God eventually is going to say enough's enough, and he's going to bring it down to believers alone. Those found in Christ Jesus, indwelled with the Holy Spirit, God's real kids. Everybody else, it's going to be over. Time's going to be up. Not because I say so. God said so. He's made it very clear. He said, I've had my hand on the whole world all this time. I've simply allowed the holes in the sieve to be very large. And yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. When you look at the Jewish people, the history of them, especially the diaspora, as they were kicked, in essence, out of Jerusalem in AD 70, scattered all over the globes, I shared with you last time some of the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people, all in this series of blood moons called the Tetrad. They're now back in the land. They fulfilled Ezekiel 37. The Valley of Dry Bones have raised up. There's flesh on the bones. The people are back in the land. But God's still not done with the nation Israel. And he's still not done with this world. There are things that your Bible says have yet to occur that have not happened. I won't destroy them, says the Lord. 
for surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. In other words, he says, look, I actually did this. God is responsible for the diaspora ultimately, just like God was responsible for Jesus dying on Calvary's cross. Do you know that? The Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. God put his own son on the cross. It was the plan from the beginning. Jesus willingly went to the cross, but it was God's plan to make him a sacrifice for our sin. So if you want to blame anybody for Jesus' death, it was God. So much so that your Bible says it pleased God to put him to shame. Why? Because it meant salvation to us, amen? That's why. So God has done, or if you prefer, allowed an awful lot of things to occur throughout the course of human history that ultimately he does use for good. But he says, I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, and yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. He knows where every last Jew is. Everyone. And his eye is still on his people. All sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Notice what he says. He says, you got a choice, saints or ain'ts. It's always been the same. You can either be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. You can either be a sheep or a goat. You can be wheat or tares. Choice is yours. God knows where every last one of them is because he made a promise to the Jewish people. And he intends to keep it. And they say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. The Jews have the same mindset that a lot of Americans do. Well, you know, I mean, after all, I've got a hardened bunker underneath my house. After all, the Israeli Defense Forces, they are one of the finest military outfits in the world, and they are. We have the best weapons the U.S. has to offer, and they do. They've got nuclear weapons, only nation in the Middle East thus far that has them other than Pakistan. India's got them, but they're more towards Asia. You see, they're saying that now. There are a lot of Jews that believe that no matter what happens, simply because of military might, they're going to make it. Can I remind you that your Bible says that one day it's going to take an absolute intervention from a holy God to save them from Russia. Ezekiel 38, 39. What's going on in the world right now? Russia's toying with invading the rest of Ukraine. Look at your map. Used to be every home owned a globe. Amen? We don't do that. I love globes. Globes are like a piece of art. I love especially old globes. But check that globe out sometime. Look at those nations that are left that stand in the way of Russia getting to Israel. There's only one that isn't an ally with Russia right now. Guess what nation it is? Ukraine. That's it. Ukraine falls. They have access all the way down through the Ukraine down through Syria, right through Lebanon, directly into Israel. The armies of the north. Am I saying it's going to happen next week? Nope. But God has been faithful and true to his word. 
He's allowed the Jews to be scattered all over the globe. It happened. He also said he would gather them back. That also has happened. So there are only a handful of things left to happen in the prophetic calendar. And the heat's getting turned up. Tonight we get to end with the good news, the merciful news. Notice what it says. And on that day, same phrase as in that day, except speaking of the exact day itself, on that day. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, both the third and the fourth temples, which has fallen down. Is it still falling down today? It's still falling down today, isn't it? So if he says he'll raise it up, it has to be after today, doesn't it? It doesn't exist. It's not there. Repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins. It lies in ruin today. Most holy place in Judaism is the western wall of the second temple. Hasn't been there for 2,000 years. And I will rebuild it as in the days of old. If you read Ezekiel 40 to 45, if you read Zechariah chapter 6, you realize that there are at least one, I believe, two temples yet to come. Because the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped in one of them. I believe that one is destroyed during the tribulation. And there will be one that the book of Ezekiel says will take up a space that's much larger than the current Temple Mount. I believe that temple is the one that's being spoken of here. It's the Millennial Temple. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, that would be Jordan, and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, there are going to be a number of different types of saints alive during that day. There will be those of us who were raptured, went home to be with the Lord, sat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then came back with Jesus at the Battle of Armageddon. There will be that group. There will be those who received Christ and stayed on this earth, the tribulation saints. You see, all that matters is that you're one of God's kids, called by my name, it says. Says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The plowman was a good guy. The reaper was a bad guy. Amen? Right now, the reaper has his sickle out. The world is a mess. It is an absolute fractured mess. If you saw today, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, to spite Israel, signed the agreement to force them to release some of the prisoners that Israel says they're not going to release. So they're going to make Israel look like a bad guy before the UN. It's all about Israel. The whole world is hinging on what's happening in this little tiny country. And the treader of grapes to him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine. It's not dripping with sweet, sweet wine right now. It's dripping with blood. And it's going to get worse. All the hills shall flow with it. And I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant the vineyards and drink wine from them. When we were in the Golan Heights last year, this time, you can look across the border into Syria from Israel, 
from the Israeli fortified positions. And you can see the cities that used to be Israeli cities that lie in waste right now. They're right on the border. They're actually in Syria now. And you can see it. And, and you, you travel along the northern border with Lebanon, and you can just see it, it literally is a stark difference between the nation of Israel on one side of the border and Lebanon and Syria, specifically on the other two sides. And you look at those cities and you go, what's the difference? It's the same land, the same basic ethnic people. It's a matter of who controls it. The same is true to this this day. It was true then. A nation whose God is the Lord rejoices. And so he says to them, their privileges will be restored. Their prosperity will be restored, and ultimately their protection will be restored. Well, I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. The Aleah is underway right now. Matter of fact, if you're a full-blooded Jew, Israel will actually give you money to come back to Israel. They will pay, they will pay you to move back to the land. Bring you back into the land of milk and honey, so to speak. God's already doing that. He's he's fulfilling his promises. They shall build the waste cities and plant the vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make also the gardens and eat of the fruit of them. It's interesting that in the, especially in the north, in in the Golan Heights, virtually every little settlement that's on the Israeli side of the border is a farm. Almost every square inch of it is farms and vineyards and orchards and Anything it can be planted on is planted, basically. But as you look at that area of the world, it is a far cry shy of what God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land that lies over the border is also actually the land that God gave to the Jewish people. And yet it's desolate, it's wasteland, it's disgusting. The buildings, though they're brand new, are run down. There's trash, there's garbage everywhere. And you travel to the Israeli side of the border, and it's just like everything is, is taken care of and manicured. Notice what it says in verse 15. And I will plant them in their land. Now remember the distinction between what we believe is modern-day Israel that was founded in 1948, that was a reduced section of the Balfour Declaration, that was not all the land that they should have received. They got this little tiny sliver that represents a minuscule portion of what God had given them. They're in that minuscule portion today. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up. The world is still trying to yank Israel from the face of the earth. A vast majority of the world would be very happy if Israel ceased to exist. Just displace them, send them to the... Not necessarily saying everybody wants to kill them, though there are certainly a bunch of nations who would do that, chief among them Iran. But virtually everybody still wants to pluck them up. Zionist thinking is a, a very small part of the, the world's thinking today. People who truly have a heart to see the Jewish people dwelling in their land. 
But anti-Semitic thought? It's rampant. It's huge. There's going to come a point in time when they're not going to get yanked out of their land anymore. The United States is still trying to force them to give up more land. Folks, there's nothing left to give. I've been there. I've stood on it. There's nothing left to give. They're an indefensible nation now. The vast majority of the citizens in Israel are of Arab descent. Arabs sit in the Knesset. They have Arab parliament members. They have Arab businesses everywhere. There is nothing left to give. And yet the nations cry out to pull up Israel out of the land still to this day. God says one day he's going to step in and he's going to stop it. I believe that he's speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. Notice what it says next, from the land that I, who's the I, that would be the Lord God of hosts, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh El Shaddai. God himself, God Almighty, that God gave them, says the Lord your God. In that time, David's dynasty was, was about to collapse. The Babylonian captivity was coming. The Assyrians were coming. It would be not too terribly long before they would have no king, no priest. They would have no temple and no sacrifices. All of those things are still in existence today. No king, no priest, no temple, no sacrifice. And yet God says that in the last days he will restore all those things. Their king will be Yeshua. That's who their king will be. Their priest will be Yeshua. That's who their priest will be. And at that time, they will restore the temple. And in the temple, they will worship the true and the living God, Jesus Christ. For he himself will sit in the temple. That's what Ezekiel said. And the sacrifice, Jesus already made it won't be necessary for the cleansing. It'll be necessary for the relationship. And so when Jesus comes again, Israel's privilege will be restored. At that time, there was no future for Israel. Family of God, there is a future for the Jewish people. God said so. Looks pretty bleak today, but I trust God. I believe he's going to restore the nation to an even greater place than they have today. Their prosperity will be restored. Right now, they're a fairly prosperous nation. Their currency is the ninth most valuable. Their economy is the ninth or the tenth largest in the world. But there will come a point in time when the whole world will flock to that nation. That will be after Jesus comes back. And then finally, their protection. We used to be, and I think... To some degree, we still are a friend of Israel. But it used to be that the reason that people didn't mess with Israel was because of us. We defended them. And it was very clear that if you messed with Israel, you messed with the United States of America. Unfortunately, that is not true under our current president. The whole world has been emboldened. 
to do whatever they want towards Israel. That is a really dangerous world because that is the scenario that is set up directly before the rise of the Antichrist. So whether that's going to happen this week, next month, next year, I don't know. But I know this. Israel being in the land hasn't happened until today. 1948 to now. A group of people who have been back in the land, whom God said he would bless, being blessed, still hasn't fully happened. One day the Antichrist will rise, Russia will invade, the Magog invasion will happen, and Jesus himself is going to come back and square things away. That's what Amos is talking about. That's what Amos was saying. He's saying, look, you're going to see all kinds of things over the intervening time of the age of grace. That's why when you read your Bible and you look at Romans chapter 11, as Paul is writing about his own people, he's a Jew, remember that. He says in verse 25 of Romans 11, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own opinion. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness, the completeness, the end of the age of the Gentiles has come to pass. I think the age of the Gentiles is winding down. Could well be over in a blink of an eye. And then it goes on to say in verse 26, And so, what would be the best way to make all these things that we just read happen? All Israel be saved. Maybe a Christian nation. A nation not just of Jewish people by heritage, sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but sons of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. When that happens, it's all going to get really good. The restoration of God's people. That gift, that calling of God, it goes on to say, is irrevocable. Can't be overturned by the hand of man. No bomb shelter is going to take care of it. No command center underneath the mountain, like Cheyenne Mountain, is going to take care of it. No presidential fortress like Mount Weather is going to take care of it when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, comes calling. Everybody is going to get with the program. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. And Lord, we lift up our world to you. And God, we just cry out as it just seems to be coming unhinged. Lord, we we pray for the families of those missing Chinese that are on that plane somewhere, God. Sure seems like it didn't crash into the sea. Likely is on land someplace, and who knows what they're going to do with it. Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, we pray for the Russian citizens who, Lord, don't want to see their friends run over with tanks. God, we pray for the Syrians and the Lebanese. God, the Ethiopian Jews who are returning right now. Lord, the Coptic Christians in Egypt. Lord, we pray for the women who are being so radically abused and mistreated throughout the Arab world, Lord. God, it's not your plan. It's not what you want. But one day you're going to come back and square all this away. And we pray in the meantime, 
as there is a remnant of the age of grace left, as the time of the Gentiles still remains, Lord, help us to be busy doing whatever we can to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, Lord, that one day you're going to take your church home, that all who are called by your name will be saved. And so, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your promises, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to live for you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.